We're uh, looking at verses 14 to 21 of Ezekiel 11. If you're using the seat Bibles, you should find that around page 592. Might help you get there quicker. Have you ever been hungry for a crisp, juicy apple? And you grab the last one out of the fruit bowl only to notice there's a bruise on it. So you you don't like, if you're like me, you don't like to throw something away and it's the last apple after all. So you find your trusty paring knife and and you cut out the bruise. But then have you ever noticed the bruise is deeper than you thought and there's still a lot of brown where you cut it out? And so you lop off more of that side of the apple. But still, there's, there's brown in there. So you try another side, more brown. So what do you do? Well, maybe you cut the apple right in half to see if there's any part which is redeemable, which is free from rot. And sometimes what do you find? You find that the rot goes right through to the core and the whole thing is useless. What a disappointment. Well, that's what Ezekiel discovers in today's passage about God's people. Let me remind us what's going on historically speaking in Ezekiel's day. Early in Ezekiel's life, the the geopolitical winds had been changing. A new world power was on the ascendancy, the empire of Babylon. And this military threat had grown and grown until finally Babylon had invaded Israel, destroyed many of the towns of Judah, and attacked the Jewish capital of Jerusalem itself, taking away many victims into captivity in Babylon. Meanwhile, those who remained in Jerusalem were were left to recover and to try to go on with their lives. Everyone figured they were the lucky ones. They were the blessed ones who hadn't been taken into exile. They were still in God's land. They still had God's presence with them, God's temple. Surely God would bless them now and protect them, allowing them to remain as a remnant of God's people in God's land. To understand why they thought this, we we have to understand how the Jews of that time viewed the world. They viewed it as being ordered in concentric circles, starting in the center and working its way out to the margins. The closer you were to the center, the more pure, the more good, the more holy you were, they thought. And the further you got out to the margins, the more tainted, the more wicked, the more unclean you were. So right at the center was the Lord's temple, the place of holiness and purity and goodness. Then outside of that was Jerusalem, God's special city, still very pure. Then next you had the rest of the promised land where God's people lived. And finally, outside of that, on the margins, were the other nations, pagan, unclean places. And so here now, after Babylon's invasion, You have some of the Jewish people, and they've been taken captive far away, all the way out to the margins. They're in exile. They've been defiled among the unclean, wicked nations now. And so for those still in Jerusalem, still near God's temple, still at the center, their perspective was that when these exiles were rejected by God, they were um, thrown in the garbage can, so to speak, Uh, tainted, spoiled, unclean, rejected by God, sent out to the margins. So those in Jerusalem concluded that the future of God's people is, is one of the microphones on? It feels like one of them went off. We've still got, you can still hear me? Okay, great. Um, 
So those in Jerusalem concluded that the future of God's people rested with them still at the center, still close to God's presence, still under God's protection and blessing. So in verse 15, those in Jerusalem express this perspective. God says to Ezekiel, the people of Jerusalem have said of your fellow Israelites and all the other, I'm sorry, of your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites, they are far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as our possession. The land is ours now, those in Jerusalem say. Too bad for those whom God has cast far away into exile at the margins. This was the worldview of God's people. It was the theology through which they saw their circumstances. Yet God raises up Ezekiel to be God's prophet, to share God's perspective on the situation, and God took a very different view on things. And the message that God gave Ezekiel to deliver to those still in Jerusalem turned out to be, a very, to be very bad and unpopular news for them. Because here was Ezekiel's message. The apple is rotten all the way to the core. Even at the center, even those still close to God's presence are rotten through and through. So they too will be thrown away, destroyed, and taken into exile. Now this wasn't an easy message for Ezekiel to deliver, as you can imagine. It surprised him as much as everyone else. And in particular, one event took place which really shook Ezekiel to the core, no pun intended. It's described in verse 13. As Ezekiel is prophesying this judgment on God's people in Jerusalem, right then, as he's preaching, one of the leaders in Jerusalem drops dead. He dies. A guy named Petaliah. I'm glad my sermons have never had that effect on anyone. (laughs) But you can imagine Ezekiel was shaken. And so Ezekiel cries out. He complains to God in verse 13. Alas, sovereign Lord, will you completely destroy the remnant of Israel? If if many of God's people have, have already been cut off and discarded like slices of rotten apple, what about those who remain at the center? Now judgment is coming on them too. There won't be any apple left. What hope is there for God's people? Well, God's answer to Ezekiel comes in today's passage. And it's good news. Not good news for everyone. In fact, it's surprising who it's good news for. Before we look at who it's good news for, though, let's ask ourselves the question, Do we tend to view the world the way those in Jerusalem did? Because we, like they, live close to the center, right? We're Christians. We seek to be faithful to God. We try to stand up for God's truth and keep our noses clean and live lives which don't defile us with the mess of the world around us. We believe God's presence is with us. We have uh, many indications that God is blessing us especially as we live here in Westchester among the wealthy and the influential and the sophisticated, those protected and cushioned from the sufferings we see out there at the margins. You know, it's so easy to take our blessings as a sign that God loves us better. It's so easy to take our prosperity as a sign that God prefers us. It's so easy to confuse middle-class respectability with true righteousness. And pretty soon we think God owes us because of who we are. 
When I was in seminary, I took a, a course called Reading the Bible with the Damned. And the professor worked with immigrants, many of whom were migrant workers. These people lived difficult lives, often homeless and vulnerable. They, they followed the apple harvests and other fruit and vegetable harvests up the West Coast, living in makeshift camps and barracks that various farmers erected along the way as temporary housing for them. Often it was hard for their children to get schooling with that kind of lifestyle or to get medical care. And my professor referred to these people as the damned. Why? Because that's how society viewed them and that's how they felt. Just think of Trump during the recent debates calling the inner cities total disasters. Saying it's devastating what's happening there. It can't get any worse. And I'm not picking on Trump here because that's how many Americans view the inner cities. And so it's how many poor communities have come to view themselves as the cast-offs, the throwaways, the marginalized. And in their hopeless despair, some have turned to drugs and to crime, and this just confirms that they're not holy people. They're the God-forsaken. They're the damned. The good people of society have rejected them, and so God must have rejected them too. Cheryl Crow uh, paints a picture of this in her 90s song, All I Want to Do is Have Some Fun. She sings about meeting a guy named Billy at a seedy bar. He's an ugly guy, she says. And she sings, we're drinking beer at noon on Tuesday in a bar that faces a giant car wash. The good people of the world are washing their cars on their lunch break, posing and scrubbing as best they can in skirts and suits. They're nothing like Billy and me. We also experience this distance between the center and the margins on an international scale and the way we, we look at certain places in the developing world. From our safe, comfortable homes, we see the chaos, we see the corruption, we see the poverty on TV. And, and we hear that lots of money is being poured into these places and yet often it seems to make no difference. And so these places seem hopeless. They, they seem beyond redemption or help. And it's easy to conclude subtly in our hearts that God must not care about them very much. That must be why they're, 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 uh, all this is happening, that they're just godless places that, that are damned while we live in America under God's blessing, although we're not sure how much longer. Well, that's how the people in Jerusalem who were at the center viewed the world out there beyond them. And how they viewed even their former countrymen who were now suffering in exile far away. But in today's passage, God says, no. You've got it all wrong. Those at the center are not at the center because they're better or because they deserve my blessing. And in fact, very soon, those in Jerusalem too are going to go into exile. The whole entire apple is rotten to the core and will be thrown away. That's Ezekiel's message. That's the bad news. So what's the good news? <laughs> the good news is that nevertheless, God, God is not done with his people. God has not stopped being faithful to his people. God is not giving up on God's plan to use his people to bless the world. God will preserve a remnant of his people. But here's the surprise. God is not going to do it from the people at the center those already close to God's presence. No, God will rescue a remnant from the margins instead. 
God is going to reach into the garbage can and pull out some of the rotten scraps. God is going to go dumpster diving. Really, God? Why rummage through the trap trash? Why defile yourself in the slimy, disgusting mess of the pagan nations out there? Do you know what those people are like? You've still got some of us at the core. Why not hold on to us? Why not work with us at the center, the attractive people, the diligent, clean-cut people, the good, law-abiding people? Well, here's God's message to those at the center. Though on the surface you look respectable, underneath you also are rotten to the core. And the worst part is you can't even see it. You won't even see it. And so you feel entitled as if I owe you something. And what's even worse, God says to those in Jerusalem, you've brought your rot, your uncleanness, you've brought your dirt and your defilement right into my holy presence. Verse 21. As for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and their detestable idols, I will bring down on your own heads what they have done. On their own heads what they have done. And up in verse 6, earlier in this chapter, you have killed many people in this city. And filled its streets with the dead. Idolatry and injustice. Two forms of of rot which God's people have defiled God's own holy place with. First, idolatry. Part of what God shows Ezekiel in this book of Ezekiel is just how much idolatry was going on in Jerusalem. Sure, God's presence was there. The Lord was worshipped in his temple. But after these people had fulfilled their obligations to God, they then went out and worshipped all sorts of other things too. So their hearts were divided and, Ezekiel says, adulterous. On the one hand, they gave the Lord his due every Sunday morning, so to speak. But on the other, they were chasing after other things, other loves the rest of the week. So let me ask you, what's wrong with this? Why is God so jealous that he's not willing to share our affections with others? Let me give you two reasons why. First, because God knows that when we chase after idols, those idols become oppressive to us. And second, when we chase after idols, we become oppressive to others. Both of these reasons stem from the fact that when we make idols in our own image... Or or rather, when we make idols, we make them in our own image. They become, they are the projections of our fantasies and our desires. And so our idols are just bigger, more powerful versions of ourselves. And so first, chasing after these idols becomes oppressive to us. The idols demand a lot from us, but in the end, they can't satisfy our deepest desires in return. For example, back in the days of Ezekiel, those in Jerusalem were worshiping gods like Molech. Molech required that his worshipers sacrifice their own children in the fire to prove that they were serious worshipers. Now that's a drastic example, but all the idols similarly extract their pound of flesh. Today we don't make little statues, we don't offer them incense or or sacrifices, but we still chase after other things. Other loves besides the true and living God. And they demand a lot from us. And meanwhile, they don't come through on what they promise. 
Brad Pitt, the famous uh, actor, uh, in an interview with the Rolling Stone um, magazine, he had this to say. He said, the emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you that's not it. I'm a guy who's got everything, I know, but I'm telling you, once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better, and you don't wake up any better because of it. Bodie Miller, famous gold medal American skier, said something similar in an interview about 10 years ago. He said, fame is like a poison. I don't care for it. I used to have a better life when I was a nobody. And yet that's still what a lot of us are chasing. To to climb the ladder, a bigger salary, a more prominent position, more influence or notoriety. And these idols demand a lot of us. Our time, long hours, the best of our energy, little compromises along the way. A little here, a little there. And often we don't realize who we're becoming in the process. How we're growing captive to what we're pursuing. Drained of life and hollow inside. We're getting rotten inside and we can't even see it. The the sweet crispness of of a joyful life. A passionate, creative life. A free, loving life which instinctively reaches out in concern and compassion. That that kind of life eludes us. And pretty soon we're of little use to God. Because it's becoming too easy for us to just be a cog in an oppressive, unjust system. Which leads us to the second reason God is so against idolatry. And that's because those who chase after idols become oppressive. Why? Because we tend to become what we worship. And so when we worship gods we've made in our own image, we we have nothing higher than ourselves to aspire to. And and what are the pagan gods like? Well, just read the the Greek myths. They're, They're petty, they're vain, they're spiteful and vindictive, they're unpredictable and oppressive. And so who's to say we can't be that way too? And, and so, because we just become what we worship, again and again in human history, idolatry has led to injustice and oppression. It did in Jerusalem. As, as those at the center worshipped other gods, vengeful, opp- oppressive gods, pretty soon they were acting like that too. Filling the streets of Jerusalem with innocent blood. And just look at history. Look at the anthropology of religion. Cultures with widespread idolatry tend to become oppressive cultures as well. Idolatry leads to injustice. And we see this today. Those who chase wealth, who who chase power soon, they come to think they're above the law, right? If, If it gets them more money and more power, then that justifies the action. And pretty soon they've set up systems that benefit them and hurt the little guy. And then we wind up working for these systems because we're chasing our share of the pie too. And our own participation in this idolatry leaves us with no moral energy, no courage to change the system. Bono, the the rock star of U2, who I love to quote and who's uh, famous for wrestling with how to relate his Christian faith to the very unchristian industry that he's part of has this to say. He says, anyone with eyes or ears open in this world can see the suffering. 
There's two kinds of people. There's those that are asleep and those who are awake. I've used my music to wake me up. And if it wakes other people up on the way, that's okay. Because we get so used to the sounds of a bomb going off in Belfast and the roll call of bad news on television. We get used to the fact that a third of the population on earth are starving. We get used to all these things and we eventually fall asleep in the comfort of our freedom. He says there's a guy called Francis Schaeffer and he says that we're entering into a new era of fascism. It won't be like the fascism of Mussolini or Hitler. It'll be the fascism, it'll be fascism with a smile and a warm handshake. It'll be based on personal peace and prosperity. In other words, if you give someone a color television, a house, a car, and two weeks of vacation a year, they'll agree to anything and stop asking questions. He's talk about, talking about our having, un, our having divided hearts, isn't he? He's talking about our idolatry and the injustice which then flows out of it. He's talking about the same rot which had invaded the hearts of those in Jerusalem in Ezekiel's day. And it, it creeps in and it takes over our hearts too. And yet we at the center can't see it because we think we're the blessed ones. We think we're the good ones. And we've spread a thin layer of piety and respectability over the top. And that's why God sends his prophets. Prophets like Ezekiel. And here's Ezekiel's message to those at the center. Thus saith the Lord, you also are rotten to the core. And I'm not going to play along with your game any longer. My judgment is coming. I'm going to throw the whole rotten thing in the garbage can. But remember, there is good news. It's not for those at the center. Rather, it's for those at the margins. You've got to go to the margins to get in on it. Listen to verse 17. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. From among those at the margins, God says, I will preserve a remnant to be faithful to me again, to carry out my plan of salvation, to bring the whole world back to me. Believe it or not, God says, I'm going into the dumpster. I'm going to the margins and I will begin my work there. When God begins a new work, God very often begins at the margins, not at the center. But Here's God's problem. The scraps in the garbage can are unclean. They're rotten too. Let's not romanticize poverty or dysfunction. There's a reason the scraps are in the garbage, that they've been thrown away with what's disgusting and gross. The reason those in exile were cast from God in the first place was their own rot, their own terrible idolatry. How are those at the margins ever going to be worthy to be brought back close to God? How are they ever going to be used by God to clean up the mess at the center, to clean up the idolatry? Well, here's the rest of the good news. God, in his mercy, is going to work a miracle for those at the margins. 
And here we have Ezekiel describing very much what we already looked at back in September when we looked at Ezekiel 36. If you listen to verse 9, it should sound very familiar. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They will follow, or then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Can you believe it? God is going to take these idolatrous people who have been cast away where they belong among the dirty pagan nations and God is going to give them brand new hearts. God is going to take their divided, adulterous hearts, their rotten hearts, and God is going to replace them with undivided hearts, hearts which beat for God alone, hearts which are true blue, hearts which are single and fully committed. Wouldn't you like to have a heart like that? God promises to do this as a work of grace, as a gift. You know, there's two places in the Bible. This is one of them. There's another in the Psalms that talk about undivided hearts. And both times, those hearts are received as a gift. Neither time are we expected to make our hearts be undivided or to muster up that kind of pure commitment by trying harder. Because the truth is, we can't. It's not in our, heart, our own hearts to do so. God has to give us undivided hearts. Without that gift, we remain half-hearted and unfaithful. And so as we continue our series on, on our hearts these next three weeks, we're going to move now from focusing on new hearts and then repentant hearts to now focusing on having undivided hearts. And, and let's remember Ezekiel's message is not make your heart undivided. It's rather ask God to give you an undivided heart. And then believe God has and start to live that way. Live out of your new heart, which is an undivided heart. So getting an undivided heart is easy. Just ask for one. It's a gift. The, the more challenging part is then keeping that heart and living out of that heart. Especially for those of us who live at the center. The center of power, the center of influence, the center of comfort and of religion. Because we're badly positioned, spiritually speaking, to participate in what God is doing. The idolatry is so strong around us, maybe in us. Our hearts become so divided and often we don't even realize that it's going on. So if we're going to keep our hearts undivided, we are going to need help from the margins. We who follow Jesus can never get too comfortable at the center. This is not our home. We have to always remember that our roots are at the margins. After all, that's who Jesus first came to, right? That's who welcomed Jesus, at the margins. And so we need to find ways to keep in touch with the margins, to keep in touch with our people. <laughs> that's why many spiritual guides and masters through the years have, have counseled that part of maintaining a healthy spiritual life involves making friends among the needy, and the oppressed and the overlooked, the outsiders. And not just serving them, giving them our charity from the center, but, but rather being with them, being friends with them and learning from them. That's why Mother Teresa said that in the poor she found Jesus. Now I can't tell you the, the best way for you to do this. There are a lot of ways to do it. 
some are ministries our church is already involved in. Prison ministry, nursing home ministry, hillside food outreach, the Jan Peak dinner for the homeless. I'll just close with one way that I've experienced this um, when I worked in the inner city in Washington, D.C. I was involved in a partnership between McLean Presbyterian Church, a wealthy, powerful church in the D.C. suburbs, and Anacostia Gospel Chapel, a, a small church in the inner city. And this was a partnership. It worked both ways. McLean Pres would provide resources to support and empower the inner city church, tutors for after-school programs, buses for camp events, funds for special projects. And meanwhile, Anacostia Gospel Chapel would provide McLean Pres with living examples of vibrant and deep faith. Friendships with people who, who put many of our faith to shame and challenged and reminded us to keep our hearts undivided. Often those from McLean remarked that the faith of their brothers and sisters in Anacostia was reminding them that they needed those inner city brothers and sisters, at least as much as those from Anacostia needed them. So if we in Westchester are going to remain or maintain undivided hearts, we're going to need to discover what those people at McLean discovered too. So let's pray.